Meditation can mean different things to different people. For one person, meditation is about developing a path of devotion. For another person, meditation is about achieving states of concentration. For another person, it's about surrender. And for someone else, meditation, their meditation, may be seen as a means of opening the heart. All of these words that we use to describe meditation don't necessarily describe meditation at all. Much more, the words that we use tend more to describe what we want from meditation. On some level, for most people, when they come to a spiritual path, they come with some form of wanting, whether it is conscious or unconscious. Often, obviously, the only thing, the only things that we cannot want in our lives is that which is already with us. So what we want from meditation and what we look for in meditation or seek for through meditation are those qualities or possibilities that actually we believe to be somehow missing or incomplete or unfulfilled in our lives or in ourselves. And our exploration of meditation is often an expression of our own trust or sense that we will find what we want through or in meditation. On very subtle levels, wanting, of course, does create expectation. And our whole exploration of a spiritual path can revolve in subtle ways around the expectations that we carry with us. Our wants, or the words that we use to describe meditation, or the expectations that we have, in also very subtle ways, is an attempt, or does attempt to, make something static out of meditation. We come to see meditation primarily as being a path to something else, a path to something which is not already with, with us. We see meditation perhaps in the sense of it being a technique or a practice or a form or a state, but a path that will lead us to that which we actually believe to be separate from ourselves or separate from what is in this moment. We should actually never really underestimate the rather relentless desire of the mind, relentless inner drive that seeks for solidity and substantiality and predictability and this inner drive or inner force is, of course, in many ways also transferred to our own exploration of meditation 
Sometimes we see the inclination and the longing of the mind over and over in in its attempts to define all things, to describe, to compartmentalize, to categorize, to make things familiar, to fit in with known reference points, to create images. And how much of that busyness that actually is one of the kind of central central activities of the mind is an attempt to make most things tangible or known to us because this is where security is found. We experience at times perhaps a certain panic or anxiety or fear in the face whenever we are faced with something which is intangible, which doesn't have a label, which is difficult to categorize. Now this force within us that has a rather addiction to familiarity is also found within our own experience of meditation. It's an attempt to make meditation into something solid, known to us, that we can refer to. Because then, in a way, we can say we have a purpose. In a way, we can say there is an object to our path. We know why we are doing it. We are going from here to somewhere else. We are going from confusion to wisdom or from conflict to harmony. We have a sense of purpose which gives meaning. We are able to say, well, this is what meditation is. Now, we often perhaps uh, rather make the mind into something of a a scapegoat. I mean, I think the mind gets rather kind of a bad, unnecessarily bad rap in spiritual life. You know, we say the mind does this and the mind does that. But actually what is the mind is doing is more articulating or giving form to inner insecurities, anxieties, fears that have very deeply buried roots in beliefs and separateness and apartness. The mind is never an enemy. You know, sometimes I think when we are faced with the tricks of the mind and its busyness, at times, you know, we are tempted maybe to treat the mind as some kind of, you know, rather... uh, unwelcome opponent that is filled with nasty urges. What is much more at work within the busyness of the mind is the desire, the force, the seeking for solidity. Because in in a way, finding solidity is the only way that the kind of belief in self or the belief in I can find contentment in meditation by making an object out of it. Because then we can say that I actually have a relationship to this path, 
I have a relationship to meditation. We're able to say, to explain ourselves to ourselves. This is what I do. This is what I practice. This is what I develop. This is what I perfect. This is what I refine. Of course, if there is no relationship, if we are unable to have that sense of purposefulness in meditation, then really the self or the sense of I finds it very difficult to find any identity within meditation. And that is experienced as anxiety. To have no identity within meditation or within anything is experienced as anxiety. Now the moment actually that we do invest (coughs) meditation with a specific purpose and compartmentalize meditation into something which is doing a kind of job for us, you know, it's fixing us up in some way or refining us in some way or freeing us of something, then of course our meditation is contained. It is contained within that field of expectation, that field of wanting, that field of familiarity, and that sense of I within it. Meditation exists then in relationship to me. Now when when this happens within our practice, as when it happens within our universe, we actually act in a way that is contrary to a meditative spirit. We actually act in a way which is contrary to a spirit of freedom. Because in this movement, in this compartmentalizing and defining and labeling, we are attempting to make something something solid out of a seeing, an awareness, an understanding that cannot be confined within solidity. We're trying to compartmentalize something which has no boundaries. The meditative path, our spiritual journey, is actually a journey concerned with awakening concerned essentially with freedom. Every time we fix our meditation within any reference point, within any image or model, we are actually attempting to restrict that spirit of freedom. Meditation actually perhaps has very little to do with any of these words that we use. Meditation in its truest sense can't be placed within the boundaries of words. And my understanding of meditation is it is not about experience. It is not concerned with experience. It's not concerned with having experiences or getting rid of experiences. To follow the belief or the path of experience is actually to follow a path of limitation and restriction. We all know the nature of experiences. They have beginnings, they have endings. They are made to happen by someone or they happen to someone. Limitation is actually the nature of all experience. 
to begin to see meditation or to seek for true meditation, any form of experience is not to cultivate a spirit of freedom, but is actually to cultivate a spirit of limitation. Because we have seen over and over in our days here what occurs within the path of experience. Something happens to us. If we like it, we try to recover it when it passes. If we like it, we try to make it be repeated in the future. Something happens to me. Who is satisfied by experience? The meditator, the sense of self, is satisfied by contact with the pleasant experience. I feel it does take an extraordinarily radical leap within the consciousness to to be willing to open our hearts in such a way that we really lose interest in all forms of experience. Losing interest in all forms of experience in another way, I think it could be described as having a passion for freedom, having a passion for awakening. It is a great leap within the consciousness because all that the eye can know actually is the field of experience. It is the most primary, the most interesting focus within our lives. And if we see the whole busyness that occurs around experience, it is actually a busyness that is dedicated to replacing unpleasant experiences with pleasant experiences. That is much of what that busyness is about. Now, as meditation does deepen, as there is a kind of calming and opening of the heart and mind, we do have access to different forms of experience. We have experiences of calmness, experiences of serenity, experiences of peace. They are wonderful, they are delightful, they are inspiring. They are still experiences. I think it takes a real maturity of insight to be willing to relinquish and abandon all forms of experience, to explore actually what it means to live in a spirit of freedom, a spirit of awakening. Now that kind of inner passion, inner dedication, is not something, obviously, which can be confined to sitting on a cushion. It's not something that can be confined to a particular place or time or content within our consciousness. It is a spirit which can only be lived in every moment in the way in which we honor awakening, the way in which we are dedicated to awakening, That dedication is actually one of the greatest challenges in our lives. Somehow it's much more interesting to explore the realm of experience and not always being willing to acknowledge the limitations of experience. It's difficult to abandon experience because we want. Because in some ways we want to be able to measure ourselves We want to be able to measure who we are and how can we measure who we are except by the experiences we have. 
We want to be able to measure progress. We want to be able to measure steps we are making in our path. And how else can we measure except by the signposts of experience? Realize how deeply rooted is this wanting within the consciousness. You may have had moments here of being very aware of the role of the commentator within your consciousness. You know, you have a moment of quiet, momentarily followed by the little voice that says, that was a good moment of quiet. You know, a moment of calmness. And there's the commentator doing well. There's the calm coming, you're getting somewhere. A moment of confusion. This kind of background commentary, which is so often going on within the consciousness, which is constantly putting everything into its assigned place, which is somehow constantly measuring, evaluating, defining through its labels exactly what is going on on a moment-to-moment level. And sometimes that commentator can actually be experienced as being really rather oppressive. You know, that you never get a break from the commentator. You know, sometimes the way people talk about the commentator reminds me of, you know, one of, you know, one of these football games or something, you know, where they have that guy up in the box saying, you know, you know, now he's running to the left and running to the right. And there's never a moment's pause, you know. But this uninterrupted, this uninterrupted monologue, you know, monologue about the state of play of every moment. Better, worse, good, bad, up, down, more concentrated, less concentrated, restless, quiet. The commentator is seeking a sanctuary within its commentary. And the sanctuary the commentator is craving is the sanctuary of security, familiarity. It is finding through its labels and its judgments. It is also, I think, important to see the way in which our judgments of our experience correspond with our judgments of ourselves. There is very rarely much discrepancy between those two. It is very rare to meet someone, you know, who says, you know, my meditation is absolutely the pits, but I'm doing wonderfully well. You know, this is not something that occurs. Usually we say, you know, my meditation is wretched, I'm a wretched meditator. The two somehow are married together. The content of the experience and the experiencer. And what, of course, the the commentary forms the basis of doing. The commentary gives purpose to the next moment. The commentary gives continuity for the next moment. Because if I say that this moment is wretched, and I am wretched within this moment, then in order to excel, I must somehow change from this moment to the next moment through manipulation or through a little more of this or a little less of that but in some way to alter the content of my experience 
so that I can have a different home within the judgment. The judgment of content is the judgment of self. There's a great teaching in that. It teaches us about the undeniable marriage, the arranged marriage between subject and object, that they can never be separated, that the world of objects can never be separated from the world of I. It is a wonderful teaching in conditioned reality and in the transparency of conditioned reality, if we can see it. To be caught, to be caught habitually within the world of judgments and commentary is also to be caught in a world of hierarchies and prejudice, not only in meditation, but in all things. It is only through judgments that we create these hierarchies of progress and failure, of depth and superficiality, of better and worse. What do these words actually mean? Do these words have anything at all to do with freedom? Or are these words more an attempt to give satisfaction to the experiencer, to give direction and purpose to the meditator? The words have very little to do with awareness. They have much to do with self-image have much to do with self-image. But I think this is not actually what we come to a spiritual path for in order to refine and polish our self-image so that we can leave a retreat feeling that we have a more polished personality, that we have somehow decreased our bad karma, that we have gained more merit, or that we have refined our sense of self. This is not what we come to a retreat for. And yet we see how easily, easily we become hooked into our judgments. And through being hooked into our judgments, we also get hooked into the idea of continuity. Now, actually, the only continuity that can be perceived is the continuity that is created through grasping. Apart from the continuity created through grasping, it's probably quite difficult to find continuity. But we manage. We manage to find continuity. We say, I used to be like this. You know, I used to be a very confused person. You know, or I used to be a very angry person, or I used to be to be very greedy, and now I'm somewhat better. You know, I've worked with some of that and got over with some of that, and in the future, hopefully, we say I will be better still. This is, of course, confining our sense of self to the boundaries of time. It gives solidity and continuity to the sense of self. It also brings limitation. It has actually very little to do with being free. These words much more create a path for the experiencer. 
what would happen if in our lives, in our meditation, we are a- we're able to let these words and these judgments and these ideas simply flow through the consciousness. As we see flowing through the consciousness the sounds of the wind, the sounds of the birds, what would happen if we were not hooked by these words? If we had no ideas at all about progress and regression, about good and bad meditations? What would happen if we had no ideas at all about what should occur when we sit on a cushion? Where would we rest if we didn't rest within our judgments? If we did not rest within our ideas, our images, or our conclusions? Whenever we get hooked into a judgment or an image about ourselves, about someone else, about anything else we have placed within those boxes, the next step of judgment, of course, is conclusion. Who we are, who others are, what we need to do, what we need to get rid of, All of these conclusions can never actually measure what is true. These conclusions can measure only the known, only what is limited, but never the unknown. There is no meditation experience and no spiritual image that can ever be a true definition of who we are and what is possible. Insight is not something that can be measured. This journey is not a path of improvement, of getting better. It is a teaching that asks us again and again to look right now at what is before us, what is within us, what is around us, to ask ourselves in this moment, where do we actually live in a spirit of freedom? And where do we live in a spirit of limitation? This question, I feel, needs to be a primary concern in this path. To look at and to explore this question with courage and with depth. Not to worry about images, not to worry about judgment, but to concern ourselves with this question. Where do we embody a spirit of freedom in all things in our lives? One of the primary problems with experience is our addiction to it. We become addicted to certain kinds of experience that we want to continue. The ones that we want to continue are those that flatter us, those that enhance our self-image. The other problem with experiences, of course, is its loss. It's inevitable loss. There are many times in our meditation, countless times in our lives, where we have the misfortune to lose our good experiences. Where we see peace turn to confusion. Where we see harmony turn to negativity. Where we see connectedness turn to feelings of alienation. There is a major teaching involved in this understanding of loss, but it's a hard lesson to learn. 
because the loss of experience is somehow equated with the loss of an integral part of ourselves, something that is important to ourselves. And this is why we begin to pursue or attempt to retrieve experiences. But look what happens in our lives when we live in such a way, imprisoned by what has already gone by, trying to reach for that which hasn't yet to come, defining ourselves by limitation, and living in a state of hunger, a state of wanting. Where is the freedom? In a state of hunger. Now, many times in our own understanding, we learn the wisdom of letting go. We learn the wisdom of not chasing experiences. And yet, sometimes we forget that wisdom. You know, sometimes on the first day of a retreat, people ask the question, how will I maintain this when I go out in my life? Before they've even done two cities. How am I going to maintain this? It often comes up towards the end of the retreat. People start thinking about and making plans and resolutions. You know, how am I going to maintain this? You know, and there are these big projects in mind about early morning sutra study and, you know, late night sittings and all of these things that the mind produces in its <coughs> desire to maintain. Sometimes the question is not asked, what is it that I am trying to maintain? You don't maintain a meditative spirit. Sometimes what we are trying to maintain is what we fear losing, what we have invested ourselves in, what has gone by. We really need to ask ourselves, is insight something that needs maintaining, or is it something that needs living? There's a fairly major difference between these two. Is insight something that needs maintaining, or is it something that we live? And sometimes people return to retreats with some very sad stories, you know, about how on the way to Newton Abbott they lost it. You know, they lost their calmness, you know, or they lost their meditation, or, you know, they lost their understanding of emptiness on the train to London, <laughs> you know, perhaps residing in the lost luggage compartment at Victoria Station. Speak about falling apart. You know, I left a retreat and I had it all together and then I fell apart. You know, I used to be happy and then I became sad when I lost it. Well, I mean, basic actuality <coughs> is that wisdom is simply not geographical. It's just <laughs> basic truth in life. Wisdom is not geographical, you know. We don't need to kind of, you know, you get these bumper stickers, you know, we could put one on our car saying, you know, Gaia House, the home of wisdom, you know. It's not, you know, it's not. Wisdom is not geographical. It either lives or it is suffocated. It is either lived or else we are deafened to it. 
what we do not lose insight we do not lose wakefulness we never lose what is possible for us sometimes what we do lose touch with and what we do lose sight of is our own passion to be awake is our own passion for freedom <laughs> in meditation you know the experiences are sometimes very are often very very valid when you sit and you are more still and you're really very experientially in touch with what it means to be serene what it means to live with an open heart what sensitivity is actually all about what connectedness feels like you know, these experiences are very important because they remind us, somehow they awaken something within us. It's not just wanting that is awakened within us, but somehow what is awakened within us through these experiences is a greater trust in what is true, what is authentic within ourselves, what is possible the way in which we can live. What is really awakened within us is a very direct and immediate realization of the unnecessariness, unnecessariness of suffering, of conflict, of confusion, to see this is not necessary. It awakens within us a true sense of possibility, perhaps a greater sense of being at home within that which is true. What is often awakened within us through experiences is a great love of being alive, a love of being conscious, a love of being awake. This is what a passion for freedom or a spirit of freedom is actually about, to live within that love of being awake alive, present, aware. What is lost sometimes in leaving retreat is not our insight, not wisdom, but that sense of love and dedication to that which we most value. Why does that loss take place? We look at the power, we see very immediately on retreats the power that that love and that passion actually has to transform our lives, transform our scene on a moment-to-moment -moment level. And yet it seems that that quality of love or passion is something which has become subdued, suffocated. One reason that love of being awake, or one factor in that, losing that sense of love or passion, is actually the addiction to pleasure. This is very major, the addiction to pleasure. We can't ignore the power of that addiction in our lives. Pleasure is represented to us in many things, perceived to reside within many things. Pleasure is also the basic foundation of feeling secure, the basic fuel for seeking for security, safety, identity and continuity. Pleasure is actually the lifeblood of the notion of I. 
It is not to imply in any way that it is better to pursue pain in our lives. It is not better. We are not going to be more enlightened by pursuing pain. But to appreciate the effects of the addiction to pleasure, how it feeds and nourishes separation, how it feeds and nourishes and fuels that craving and restlessness within us, It is easy to dedicate our lives to the pursuit of pleasure, (coughs) equal to equally to be a casualty of the unpleasant. Pleasure supports the self. The unpleasant threatens it. The addiction to pleasure means to be endlessly lost in dualities and hierarchies, to be lost in the tension between pursuing one thing and avoiding another, between seeking for safety and being afraid of being insecure. It is an addiction which can make us live our lives in a frantic and in a desperate way, always reaching, searching, never feeling fulfilled, never feeling satisfied. It is an addiction that is the basis of dividing the world into allies and opponents. The opponents are those that challenge and threaten us in some way, threaten to deprive us of safety, of identity, of security, of pleasure. The allies are those, all those things that seem to offer us or promise us the fulfillment of need, the fulfillment of craving, safety and comfort. To live in a world of allies and opponents is to live always on edge, always in a state of tension because we can't control the world of allies and opponents. We can't control it and so we are always afraid of it. We reach out for it with one hand, on the other hand we fear it. There is never any true peace within that world. It is the basis of so much struggle because we can't control it. You know, our opponents seem to pop up when we are least ready for them. Our allies don't seem to be there when we most need them. It's a tremendous insecurity in that world. Governed by pleasure and pain is a very tenuous sense of safety. And then we always have to be busy. We always have to be busy in that world because things won't stay the same. So we always have to be busy when we are governed by our addiction to pleasure and our field of pain, our fear of pain. We have to be busy avoiding the opponents, looking for the allies, getting rid of the unpleasant, seeking for the pleasant. It leads to a whirlwind within our lives a whirlwind of doing, a whirl, a storm of doing, of becoming, of securing the perimeters of our personal world. Our addiction to that busyness and pleasure embodies our addiction to the belief in self, creates a world for us of sorrow, of conflict, It is difficult to live in the spirit of freedom when we are always caught in avoidance and pursuit. It is really difficult to understand emptiness and transparency 
When we invest in the world the power to threaten us and the power to flatter us, <coughs> we are captives, captives and prisoners of the very things that we have invested that power in. We are exiled in that from any true sense of authenticity. The much of this teaching is really showing us a different way of being, a different way of seeing, a different way of living, a different way of being present. It teaches us about awareness, about the peace that is found within awareness. You know, the Buddha once said that this path is the path of happiness, and the highest happiness is peace. It's not gratification. It's not experience. It's not getting high. It is the peace of being with what is. It is being able to let go of those drives of I am, I have, I need, I will become. Because every time we are prisoners of those drives, we think, you know, we make our home within those identities. We try to make our home within those identities, thinking that this is somewhere finally I will be able to rest. Saying, I am this, I have this, I will become this, I have gained this. We think we will find our home. But it is like trying to make a home within an empty shell. think seeing clearly, seeing clearly, being willing to appreciate the power of awareness really allows us to let go of our beliefs and our subscriptions, to live more greatly in a meditative spirit, to live in a way in which is unconditional in this world, a way of not having preferences knowing the freedom of non-dwelling, of non-grasping, of non-holding, knowing the liberation of not living in fear of loss or in a sense of deprivation, of not having. In Buddhism, <coughs> uh, the Buddha once used a word to describe enlight the enlightened heart, and he used the word akinshana. And akinshana defined means not holding on, one who doesn't hold on to what has already gone by, who doesn't look for what has yet to come, one who is nothing, who becomes nothing, who has nothing, who seeks for nothing, who desires to get rid of nothing, and who rests nowhere. You know, in a way, that might sound like a very kind of, you know, it's a lot of nothings, you know. It sounds like maybe, you know, like maybe this is, you know, not much fun, you know. Maybe there's not much fun in this. You know, what's left? What's going to be left? What's going to be left if you take all that away? If you rest nowhere, have nothing, defined by nothing, seek for nothing, want nothing, want to get rid of nothing, what is left? What is left when we take away becoming and having and wanting? Does it leave anything at all? And sometimes, you know, this is the great fear of freedom. 
the fear that to strip all of that away we are going to be left with some sort of horrible black hole of nothingness you know of being no one of having nothing you know no identity no direction no purpose actually to rest nowhere to have nothing to be no one actually means the emergence of that which is most true, most true, most authentic. It is learning to step out of the constructed and the conditioned. What is there in stepping out of the constructed and the conditioned? What is revealed? Another factor which very much inhibits a meditative spirit it's the factor of habit there's the factor of addiction to pleasure there's also the factor of habit it is not just the more obvious habits of routines and order and doing things in a certain way that satisfies our desire for control and predictability there is another level of habit that lies within the world of images, descriptions that we have about ourselves, descriptions that we hold about others. Sometimes that habit continues because it is simply easier to live within a world of descriptions than to live with an open heart, than to inquire and to question. It simply seems easier to know things than to live with that which is not known. There is another level of habit which I think is far more lethal and dangerous, and that is actually the habit of limitation. The habit of limitation <coughs> is the primary obstacle to awakening. The habit of limitation manifests in terms of our beliefs and our willingness to accept those beliefs, our willingness to live within the confines of our beliefs. The beliefs may be many, they are our personal mythology, our personal myths that we believe to be the truth who we are. Our personal mythology is described by the words I am and the definition that follows or the many definitions that follow or the many descriptions that follow. To accept that I am. I am mind, body, personality. I am my history. I am my experiences, I am my judgments, I am my cravings, I am my needs. All of these words that we use consciously and unconsciously to describe ourselves and then the willingness to accept that those words as being the truth, this is our personal mythology. 
accompanying all of those words that we use to describe our personal mythology is accompanying I am comes the I can't I can't I can't do this I can't be awake I don't believe it's possible to be awake I can't explore this I can't extend myself in that way why? because of fear because we fear of stepping outside of our personal mythology because even when that personal mythology is painful at least we know it at least we know it there are no surprises within the realm of personal mythology or at least the surprises that do arise they at least relate to the personal mythology and somehow kind of fill it out a little we are sometimes afraid of stepping outside of our personal mythology sometimes it's useful to look at what your personal myth is your history, your description of yourself, what you believe to be true about yourself, what you believe to be possible and impossible for you, how much you define yourself by your history, by your story, by your content. Because this is the habit of limitation. In a retreat, in this journey, we are actually invited invited to let go of that habit of limitation because we are invited to explore what is possible for us but it's a very subtle habit sometimes we are more satisfied with refining and redecorating our personal mythology than stepping outside of it because of fear the reluctance to upset the order the order that our personal mythology offers to us to stay the attraction of staying with what is known and familiar to us now the habit of limitation is a practice that we refine through time it is given solidity through clinging it is given solidity through our personal history I used to be this therefore I am this and therefore I need to become this the habit of limitation is given solidity through fear the fear of opening to what is not known it would be an interesting and a wonderful exploration to be able to approach a single sitting or a single walking with a wholehearted willingness to let go of our personal mythology all of our notions of what I am I can't, what I used to be, what I must become. What we do here in this path is many things, there are many dimensions, many subtleties to what we do within the, the kind of mystery of this process. In many ways, you know, we can make a list and we say, well, we, we nurture calmness, we nurture clarity, we nurture compassion, we nurture sensitivity in order to bring about the end of suffering there are also for many people there's a much bigger agenda about what we do here or even what is done takes place within the context of their personal myth in the east in the east i think you know it's fairly uh, 
fairly common. But certainly in, in places where I practiced or was introduced to this teaching, basically it's accepted that the reason that you meditate is in order to be enlightened. I mean, that's putting it quite simplistically. That that's kind of the you know any most teachers would look at you rather puzzled if you had any other reason, you know, because that is actually the reason that you meditate. You know, I think nobody could understand whatever reason you would have to kind of hang around on a cushion, except if you were really interested and dedicated to awakening. Now, in the, there is a, an inclination, I think, probably because of our cultural conditioning, probably because of our conditioning which leads us to be so interested in our personal histories and our personal selves and our personal futures that we tend to approach meditation with a very uh, detailed menu, a very detailed agenda. You know, that often we think we have a lot to do here. You know, we think we've got a big job ahead of us, you know, a very detailed task before us. You know, and often we have, you know, a, a list almost, a kind of, sometimes even a written list, not always an unwritten list, sometimes a written list, you know, that we start out in a retreat, you know, and we know why we're there, I'm here to fix this, you know, do this, alter this, change that, modify this, refine this, get rid of that, achieve that, and, you know, it's fairly, it's fairly major construction job, actually, you know, it's like building a high rise or something, you know no simple hut we're kind of creating here. You know, we have a big project. Often that is our approach. We have a very big project, you know. And a lot of it is to do with personal perfection. Working things out, you know, having a more acceptable self. A nicer self, a better self, a more attractive self. A self that's going to win more applause, it's going to be more interesting, you know, have more exciting things to talk about. You know, a self that is, you know, vital and dynamic and, you know, all those things that the self can be. But, you know, it requires a lot of work because we are convinced of the reality of our personal myth. Because of the reality of our personal myth, we have, of course, all these other things, unfortunately, we have to attend to. You know, all the kind of tackiness within our personalities and the unresolved things within our minds and the issues we've carried from our grandparents and, you know, all the thousand and one things we must do. Why? Simply because we have subscribed to this personal myth and we believe, we believe that personal perfection is a requirement for awakening. And actually, sometimes awakening is not on the menu whatsoever. You know, it simply doesn't a feature in our own kind of movie. Or we think, you know, if I have enough time left in this life, you know, after I've done all of this, which is probably going to take many years, because time, time, it must be appreciated, time is very crucial to supporting the personal mythology myth. That whole story, time is crucial. You know, we think in terms of progression, in terms of refinement, in terms of gradual change, and of course then we think of later. You know, later, because actually, interestingly enough, 
I mean, I've never met anybody who had a perfect self. But still, there seems to be the belief that it's possible. You know, if I do enough retreats, I do enough sitting, I do enough work on myself. I think, you, don't, you know, the point is, the point actually is that <laughs> if there is a belief in personal mythology, no matter how many things you get rid of, you're going to accumulate some more. That, that's the basic actuality. You never come to an end. There's no end. There isn't actually an end. I mean, it's an interesting and engaging task. I do agree, you know. It can be really interesting and at times exciting and, oh, you know, all that stuff. But it is endless. The notion of self, you think of it as a kind of piece of, uh, as a kind of a glue. It's a glue. You know, no matter how much you pick out one piece of dirt, you know, it's going to grab another one, you know, when you're not looking. And so there's always going to be something else to do. It is endless. It is endless. And, of course, we can only engage in that process as long as we're supporting this belief. As long as we are actually supporting this belief. In an understanding of awakening, not as a goal, not, uh, not conceiving of enlightenment, or truth as something that lies in the future because if it lay in the future it would be conditioned. If truth is the unconditioned uh, which dependent upon anything at all it would not be unconditioned. You know, enlightenment is called awakening to the truth. Awakening to what is true. Awakening to the unconditioned. Anything which is conceived of as being separate from this moment is not unconditioned. It is not separate from us. Unconditioned reality is not separate from the truth of who we are. It's not something you can ever work towards because you are never apart from it. Only the mythology is actually getting in the way. Only the mythology, the fear of letting go of that mythology, the clinging to the mythology is getting in the way. You know, and this is actually, this is actually what a spirit of freedom or a passion for awakening is actually concerned with. Not becoming awake, not later, not notions of time, but in terms of the willingness to abandon personal mythology. The willingness to abandon that story, to awaken to that which is not constructed, not conditioned, not dependent upon anything which is ever present, which is in and through all phenomena, which is not bound to time, which shines through this whole world of phenomena, not dependent on its absence, not needing its presence, the presence, the underlying, unconditioned reality, which has nothing to do with time or state, that is that spirit for freedom, passion for freedom, or living in a meditative spirit is actually all about opening to the possibility of that revelation, that awakening in every moment. May all beings 
live with an open heart. May all beings be free of delusion. May all beings live with wisdom.